Well, I've mentioned in previous messages that I've had the opportunity to give here at New Break PB that uh, I only get the um, opportunity to preach uh, on topics that God is currently working on in my life personally. And today is absolutely no exception. We're going to be finishing up this series called Asking for a Friend, and today we're, we're specifically focusing on, on avoiding burnout and how to deal with stress and how to cope with loss and with grief. Um, you know, ironically, back in February, at the end of February, we were in a series called From Surviving to Thriving, and I also had the opportunity to preach on almost this very same topic. I honestly thought about just redoing that whole sermon, but I didn't. I, this is a brand new one, I promise. I didn't even steal a single thing from it. But here's the thing, like, obviously God is still working on this in my life, so I'm just going to say that at the front, right here, just open up right now, like, God is still working on this with me. I don't know how to say no. I do a really poor job of saying no. I do a really good job of just piling and piling and piling more and more things on in my life. And, and a lot of times I feel like I get buried, and, and I do. I, I have these, these habits and these patterns in my life that, uh, that oftentimes lead me to these places where I just feel overwhelmed. I just feel burned out. I just feel so tired that I don't feel like doing anything. And I've got two kids and a wife and a family and, and a dog and you know responsibilities. And there are times in my life where I just feel like, Ugh, like the weight of the world is on my shoulders and it's self-imposed. It's totally, it's totally me. Nobody else is doing this to, to me but me. Um, and I, I'm sure most of us have experienced burnout in some way, shape, or form during the course of our lives. You know, we're all created uniquely uh, as individuals and, 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 you know, different circumstances in our lives can lead to, to burnout, can lead us to stress out, can lead us to, to have grief and to, and to feel sorrow. Um, most of the time we don't even realize. I know for me, I don't even realize that I'm experiencing like the symptoms of burnout until I hit what people who have experienced burnout call the wall, right? It's just like, wham, all of a sudden there I am. And I am, I just feel again, overwhelmed. And like, I, I, I don't know which way is up. Maybe you're, a, you know, maybe you're a mom or you're a dad and you've got kids and your norm is a lack of sleep. Your norm is preparing meals and, and constant crying and stinky diapers and bedtime routines. And the, he, you know, I need a glass of water and he took my toy. This is the everyday constant juggling of parenthood. Or maybe you're in a work environment that's extremely competitive. And you've got to, you know, to get the promotion, to get the raise, to, to, to move up in the company, you've got to work hard. In fact, you've got to work harder and longer hours than you ever have. You've got to outsell your nearest competitor. In fact, sometimes you feel like you even need to step on people to get, you know, higher up in your, in your company. And you're, therefore, you're, 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 you're not paying attention to your body. You're not paying attention to your health. You're, you're maybe moving away from friends and families because you're focusing so much on your work environment. Maybe you're a student. And you've got the weight of, of class expectations and how many classes should I take and, you know, trying to figure out schedules. And then you're probably trying to work as well to pay the bills and, and bring that in. And then you want to have a social life and you've got all of those things that maybe pile up on top of you. And, and you know, oftentimes you can't figure out which direction is up. Or, or maybe you're in a work environment where you're just feeling unsatisfied. Or even worse, you're feeling unappreciated. You go through the rigors of the day-in and day-out work experience, but there is no challenge. There's no drive to your job. There's no purpose, it seems. So no matter what you do, no matter how hard you work, no matter how good your work is, you get overlooked, and you feel like just one of the worker bees. And there's so much potential that you have, and you realize that maybe, possibly, that potential will never get recognized. 
Maybe you're two or three of these scenarios. Um, maybe you've experienced any one of these in your life at some point. And maybe even a scenario I didn't mention. You know, things like, things like bills piling up, family drama, relationship woes. All of those things can cause us and can lead us, if we're not careful, they can lead us to burnout. They can lead us to just taking on grief and taking on, um, you know, these, these things in our life that will, that will really cloud our judgment and they'll cloud our, their, they'll cloud our eyesight. They'll cloud just the way that we do our lives. So I ask you this question to start off this morning. Morning, how do we how do I keep moving forward when life beats me down? Again, I'm sure most of us have been there. Life comes at us hard. Circumstances seem to pile up, and before we know it, we're buried and we're not sure how to dig ourselves out. And I think part of digging ourselves out is just identifying and being aware of what the symptoms of burnout look like, what the symptoms of dealing with stress or dealing with grief look like. Um, this is from Forbes magazine. These are just some of the, the 10 signs of, of burnout. And as you look at that list, can you relate to any of those things on there? You're exhausted all the time. Maybe you've got a lack of, of motivation. You're frustrated a lot. You've got negative emotions. That one, for me, that one stands out. Slipping job performance, interpersonal problems at work or home. You don't take care of yourself. Being preoccupied at work when you're not at work. Does anybody else struggle with that? Kind of feel like you're always taking work home with you? Generally decreased satisfaction, health problems. Those things are all uh, just, they shouldn't be in our lives. They shouldn't be in our lives, but yet the, the, the rigor of the everyday life here in, in San Diego, it, it can be difficult. And so my hope today is, that, is that, that we'll be able to tackle some of this and that we'll give you hope will give you that this is not the way that we were created to be. This is not the way that God designed our lives to be lived. No, he's got so much more for us. And I know a lot of times we can feel, we can feel shameful about these things, but I think it really helps to talk about these things. It really helps to talk about these things and just to, to kind of bring them out there in the open and allow us just to, to go, okay, I'm not alone in this. I'm not alone in feeling like I'm not motivated a lot. I'm not alone in, in the fact that I don't take care of myself all that well. I'm not alone in those things. And so when we do these things together, I mean, that's why we push life groups so hard here at this, at this church, because we want to do life together. We want to experience things together. And when one of us is going through any of these things, we're able to come to our group and we're able to come to our family and we're able to, to deal with that together. And I wish, though, I could stand up here and just give you this magic anecdote, right? This, this, here's what you have to do, A, B, and C, and then it's all going to be fine, right? But unfortunately, like, I don't have that. I don't think any of us do. But here's the thing. We believe in a God who, again, doesn't want these things in our lives, who actually fought hard to make sure that we didn't, don't have these things in our lives, and who calls us to remember who he is and his faithfulness in our lives, he calls us to seek after him when we face times of trial. He, he, he calls us to remember how much he loves us and how much he's provided uh, for us in the past. And then he gives us these stories and these inspirations from his, from his word, from scripture. And one of those stories is the story we're going to be focusing on today. It's in 1 Samuel 30. We'll be going through most of this passage today. So if you have a moment, you want to open up your Bibles, go ahead and do that or open up your phones and get to the, the version app. There's also Bibles on the back table if you'd like to get a Bible and follow along with us. See, throughout this series, <clears throat> we've been looking at the life of David. David was described as a man after God's own heart, but yet even after that qualifier, he was still human. David still messed up. David still struggled. 
He still got burned out. He still dealt with sorrow. He still dealt with grief. He dealt with all of those things. But yet he was described as a man after God's own heart. So he must have been doing something right to get that label, uh, such a, a prestigious label. See, in this passage, uh, David is, not, is still not the king of Israel. I don't know if you were here four weeks ago. If you were, when I got to launch this series, we looked at the life of David. We're actually introduced to David as a 15-year-old boy. Samuel, the prophet, comes to his father Jesse's house, and he anoints David as the king of Israel, the next king of Israel. See, currently, there's a guy named Saul who's the king of Israel, and Saul had, all the, uh, had the appearance of a king, but his heart was rotten. He dealt with pride. He dealt with arrogance. And he actually did so many things against what God wanted him to do and basically just disobeyed God left and right. Any opportunity he had, he really did a a poor job of following God. And so today we're going to actually contrast David and Saul a little bit here and there. But again, in this passage, David's still not king. So we're going on like year 15. He's probably been uh, anointed as king about 15 years ago. And and at this point, he's a warrior and he's actually on on the run from King Saul. King Saul, uh, David found favor in in the eyes of King Saul for a while. He was his armor bearer. That means it was like one of his closest guards or protectors. And actually Saul struggled with, uh, you know, he had just some some things that ailed him a lot. And so he would call David in. David was a musician. So he'd call David in and David would play music for him and it would soothe King Saul. But the, the, the tides have turned, and, and the people have actually started to favor David more than they favor Saul. And Saul becomes increasingly jealous. And so David is on the run. Saul is trying to kill David. And so David's on the run with about 600 men. And they actually go into this, this area. This, um, it's, it's a enemy territory. It's called, the, it's called the Philistine. And they go into the Philistine territory, and, and, and they're kind of camped out at this, this town called Ziklag, right? And, and David is thinking that he uh, is going into this town and going into this territory because he thinks that Saul won't chase him in there, and he's right. If you know anything about Israel history, or Israel's history, usually when Philistine and, or when the Philistines and, and Israel are, are in the same kind of passage or section of, of Scripture, it's because they're going to war. You remember David and Goliath, that story? Like, Goliath was a Philistine right? They were constantly at war. So the fact that David would do something as crazy and as bold as go hide here, that's how much fear he felt from, that King Saul was actually going to succeed in killing him. So he's a warrior who's on the run. He's been living in this town called Ziklag, and Saul won't chase him there. So David and his men, they're actually going to do something even crazier. They're preparing to join the Philistine army to go and attack the Israelites. They're about to go attack their own people. But however, the, the, the Philistine commanders, that kind of at the last moment, they've got all the 600 men and David, and at the last moment they go, no, something seems fishy. I don't think we want you to, to come with us on this attack. And so they actually send David and his men back. And it's, it's during this time that they're gone that their town that they've been living in with all their, their wives and children and elderly and, and, and sheep and goats and livestock, it's completely destroyed by a group named the Amalekites. The Amalekites were like, um, like the ISIS of today. They were terrorists. They would go around and they would terrorize uh, people groups and countrysides and towns and just lay waste to everything. Now, here's the thing. Ironically, again, going back four weeks ago, when we talked about King Saul, one of the, one of the ways that Saul disobeyed God was he was supposed to completely wipe out the Amalekites. God gave the order, Saul, go take your army and wipe them off the face of the earth. Nothing should be left. And Saul spared a bunch of them. And Saul didn't destroy all of them and destroy all of their stuff. 
And so now as a people group, they've rebounded and they kind of, they, they are these little, this little terrorist group that goes around and they've completely burned and destroyed the town of Ziklag. So now picking up in our story today, we're in, again, 1 Samuel 30, verses 1 through 6. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it. And they had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. Can you imagine? You go to work, you come home from work, and your home's burned down. And your dog's missing. And where are my wife? And where are my ki- where's my wife? Where's my kids? Where's my fish? Where's my stuff? Can you imagine the horror of, uh, you know, even, even as you're walking back to your town that you think is just going to be over the next hillside and you start to get the smell, something's burning. What's on fire? That's not a natural smell. And then you, you know, get to the top of the ridgeline and you see down and you notice that's my village and you can't find a single soul. There's nobody there. They've all been taken captive, but you don't know that yet. Can you imagine the horror that David and his men must have felt? Uh, Picking up in verse 4. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. That's a natural reaction, I would think. David's two wives had been captured. In verse 6, it says, David was greatly distressed because the men, his men, were talking about stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because his sons, uh uh-oh, kicked my tea over, um, because his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord, his God. I read that passage, one of the things that sticks out to me is how did David do that? How did David find strength in the Lord, even though he was, you know, his world was crashing in on him? How did he do that? Well, again, David is described as a man after God's own heart. I think the first thing that David, that David did, and it gives us um, the answer to that right there, he, he took time to process the pain, right? See, often we, we go from one crisis to another and we don't stop long enough for our minds and our emotions to catch up and, and to actually take in everything that is happening. I don't know if you do this, but for me, sometimes I, I find that I just try to power through it, or I think I've just got to suck it up and I've just got to move th- forward when, when pain happens, when crisis happens. When I make statements like, I don't have time to have a nervous breakdown, or, or I wish I had the luxury of counseling, if you make those statements, those are red flag statements. Those are statements that say you need to stop what you're doing and take time to process whatever it is that's happening right now, because you're not in a good spot. And I've been there before. Believe me, I've been there. See, often dealing with loss, and we try to bypass the grief, but it's so important to grieve. When we face sorrow, when we face tragedy, when we face things that, that, oh man, they just are terrible things in our life, it's important. It's important to grieve. It is so important to grieve, and oftentimes we feel like we can't grieve. No, we've got to be strong, but it's important to grieve. So whether or not you're, whether you're facing the loss of a job or the short sale uh, or foreclosure of a home, you're facing you know, death in the family or an illness or, or not getting your promotion or failing at school or divorce or any of those things, they're all losses. They're all losses, and we need to grieve those things when we enter our lives. We need to share those things with others when we need the support. Come, I need, I need help with this. I can't do this alone. And again, we see in our passage today, David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. Have you ever been in a place where you've had no strength left to weep? You've cried so much that there are no more tears that are going to come out of your body. 
They're physically unable to cry anymore. That's where David and his men were. They had no strength left to weep. David and his men took time, though, to, to deal with their emotions, to deal with their grief. And I'm sure David and his men found it very valuable to grieve as they were processing what happened and then what needs to happen next right? Because see, for us, um, and David is, is experiencing this full on, uh, good decisions are challenging in the midst of turmoil, right? We still need to make decisions in the midst of turmoil, but good decisions, they can be incredibly challenging if our perspective is off, if our focus is off, if we don't have hope in a God who loves us, th- those, those decisions can be incredibly challenging. I know for me personally, I can't make a very good choice uh, when I'm sad or when I'm angry or when I'm frustrated, with whatever it is that just happened. This is why parents, they, you know, parents, it's, it's not a good idea to, to, you know, discipline your kids while you're angry, right? Your kid just did something stupid or whatever, and you're just like, oh, you get so angry. It's not a good, it's not a good moment to discipline your kids. Take a moment, cool yourself down, cool your jets, and then come back and address the situation, address the problem. This is also why, like, Alcoholics, and Alcoholics Anonymous and, and, and group, people that are in Celebrate Recovery groups, um, they actually instruct you not to make any big decisions or life decisions within the first year of recovery. They don't want any of those things, any of those big life decisions to, to potentially knock you off the wagon and help have you turn back to, to alcohol or whatever it is that you're struggling with. It's hard to make good decisions in the midst of turmoil. And when we're grieving, here's the thing. It's important to do a few things. The first one is this. You need to avoid isolation. We've been talking about it already this morning. Doing this life together. It's important to avoid isolation. Again, David and his men, they wept. They did that together. It wasn't like David went and hid behind a rock and just cried his eyes out. It'd be hard to do that with 600 men. No, they took time to do that together. They were avoiding isolation. See, as leaders or even as Christ followers, a lot of times we think we can't lose it in front of those that we are leading or in front of those that we're trying to share uh, God's love to. As a husband, sometimes I know I feel like I can't lose it in front of my my wife and kids. I can't show emotions in front of my... Because I've got to be the strong one. I've got to be the one who is the bacon bringer homer, and I've got to be strong, and and, and I don't feel like I can do that. Or maybe you're a boss, and you don't feel like you can lose it, and you can't feel uh, vulnerable in front of your your employees. And I I understand it's, it's wise to just make sure that you're in a safe environment to show your emotions, but there is so much to be gained by modeling what it looks like to handle different circumstances, especially if you're a leader or a husband or a mom, or sorry, a a dad or a mom. And David and his men, they were closer uh, than brothers. They had been uh, together for quite some time. They had battled, you know, right alongside each other. So these guys were closer than brothers and David knew that he could be vulnerable um, with, with them. The second thing we need to do when we're grieving is, is this. Recognize when others are simply looking for someone to blame. Right? When we're experiencing grief together especially, the blame game can happen very quickly. And this is what's happening in, in this passage, right? David, David's men are kind of turning on him. They're going like, oh, this is David's fault that we're in this sticky situation. Where This is David's fault that, that our wives and our children and our, our livestock has been taken. And so they, they start to turn on David a little bit. Right? This passage says that, great, that he was greatly distressed because his men were talking of stoning him. It wasn't enough that David's own family had been taken captive, but was really, what was really bumming David out was the fact that his men, the guys that he counted on in life and in battle, they were abandoning him and they were turning on him very quickly. 
David was experiencing the exact same thing that those men were, but because he was their leader, they blamed him for their losses. See, leaders, this is C.S. Lewis, leaders can often be misunderstood, maligned in their motives and decisions questioned. This is why, folks, it is so important to pray for your leaders. It is so important to pray for your, your leaders, our leaders. Pray for their wisdom. Pray for their discernment. Pray for their health. Pray for their families. It doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you fall on. Pray for our leaders. Pray for the people that are making um, you know, decisions for our country, for our state, for our city. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your bosses. It is so important. Even if you don't see eye to eye with them, it doesn't matter. The Bible calls us to pray for our leaders. And a lot of times when those decisions are made that don't go in our favor, we don't like something that's happened, we just go, ah, forget it, you're on your own. No, it is so important to pray for our leaders. Our leaders, with all the pressures that they are facing on a consistent basis, they can be incredibly susceptible to burnout, which is going to cause more poor decisions in life. So we need to pray against that for our leaders. The final thing we need to do in our grieving process when we're grieving, when we're feeling like we're, we're stressed out, we're, we're going to be burned out, is this. We need to replenish our reserves. Replenish your reserves. Grief is a response to any loss. And, and most hardships we face, uh, they, they in, include some sort of loss. And we often don't realize that grief takes far more energy than people ever anticipate. To deal with the grief in our life, it takes so much more energy than we ever anticipate. But we can learn something from David's reaction here. Look what David did. David found strength in the Lord, his God. David just didn't suck it up and move forward. He, he knew he needed time with God to renew his strength. And so check this out. This is important. I want to point this out. Notice that David had a personal relationship with God, the Lord, his God. And in contrast to Saul, going back into 1 Samuel 15, um, Saul, when he's talking to the prophet Samuel, refers to uh, the Lord, your God. Saul doesn't have a personal relationship with God. And that's why things start to fall apart for Saul. But David, on the other hand, the Lord, his God. Is the Lord your God? Is the Lord your God? Or is there something else that potentially uh, you put in front of God? I do. Oh, that's right. God, you're there. I, you should be here. I'm sorry. You should be up front. But I forget that sometimes because I think we're human and that happens. The Lord, our God, the Lord, his God. I know for me, when I need my reserves to be replenished, I typically need to get out into nature. I typically need to just get outside. It's, it's not like just going on a run or a bike ride. Like I need to be somewhere where um, I'm going to be away from the distractions. I'm going to be away from my phone or my computer and the emails and the social media and the text messages and the phone calls. Like I need to be away from all that stuff. Um, I had a friend at a former church. He would ask me almost weekly, sometimes even more. He would ask me, hey, bro, uh, did you paddle out this week yet? Like, ask me if I'd gone out for a surf, right? And, and you know, if I didn't, and, and if, if for some odd reason, if I didn't do that, he would kind of get on my case. And he would say things to me like, bro, bro, you need times in the lineup to renew your soul. It's important for you. And it was. It was totally, he was totally, totally, totally right. Actually, even just last week, I had a friend ask me if I caught any of the South Swell that hit a week ago, and I admitted to him that I didn't. And then I admitted to him that I actually hadn't paddled out in a little while. It had been a, a little while. 
And then he asked me, well, you know, hey, maybe have you replaced your surfing time with some golf time? Because that's another, you know, golf for me is one of those things where I can get out in, in nature. I've got to worry about smacking that little ball and making it go in the hole. And it's very, you know, I can kind of check out for a little while. But I had to admit to him, no, actually, I, I haven't been doing a good job of that either. I went one time with a buddy last week to hit some golf balls. But when I'm firing on all cylinders and my life is in a healthy space, I'm usually doing that three or four times a week just to, just to get to the putting green, just to get to hit some chips or some balls on the range. And I wasn't doing that either. And, and he wasn't being judgmental by any means, but he just was like, hey, you know, is the busyness of your life going to slow down at some point here so that you can get back into those things, get back into the things that, that do, they soothe your soul, they help renew your soul? And again, for me, it was, that was convicting. Again, he wasn't being judgmental. It was just, that was convicting. I need to do a better job of carving out time in my life to replenish my reserves. Because see, if my cup, if my cup is always empty, then guess what? That is going to, there's no overflow. That is just going to result in, in not good relationships with my, with my anybody, anybody that I come in contact. I'm not going to be a better, you know, I'm not going to be a good person. I'm not going to be a good husband. I'm not going to be a good father. I'm not going to be a good coworker or a good friend. I'm not going to be able to do any of those things when my cup is empty. So what does that look like to you? What does that look like for you when you need to be replenished physically or emotionally or mentally? How do you do that? How do you do that to avoid burnout uh, it, 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 man, taking time to replenish is so important. Chuck Swindoll says it this way. It is when the bottom drops out and we start feeling insecure that our Lord slips in the back door and delivers stability. That is so true. That is so true. See, God is never more than a step away from us. All we have to do is remind ourselves that he's right there, ready for us. I don't know about you, but a lot of times I get moving and I don't even think about God. And I, I get so far in front of God and all I have to do is turn around and, and he's right there, ready to deliver stability. So after we process the initial trauma of grief and, and we're dealing with things like burnout and those sort of things and we're trying to make healthier uh, decisions in our lives, well, how do we do that? What do we do? We begin moving forward slowly and strategically. This is not a sprint, this is a marathon, typically. This is not an overnight fix. No, this is something that we need to do slowly and strategically because, heaven forbid, we fall back into the same patterns that we've already created in our life that are, that are leading to this instability. And we do this by asking for help. See what David does in verses 7 and 8. Then David said to Abathir, the priest, the son of Amalek, bring me the ephod. Abathir brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. See, as soon as, as, soon as David was done mourning, even for a time, he asked God what he should do. What he should do first. He didn't leave it up to his own devices. No, he didn't form a team or a task force to come up with a plan. No, he, he, he asked God, God, what should I do in this situation? He knew that his men were too distraught, and so his decisive leadership was absolutely necessary. And this is so important. Oftentimes we need that outside perspective, that outside wisdom, just to bring um, some good objectives, just to bring some good perspectives in our lives. Again, life groups, I can't say it enough. Do life together. Have that godly perspective brought into your life when life seems to beat you down. 
The second thing, though, is this. We need to be careful not to rush others who may not be ready to move forward. Whenever we're dealing with grief, especially in a group, um, you might be on a different path. Your grief might lead you down this way, and it it might be one of those things where you're moving in a direction at a pace that's good for you, but be careful because it might not be the same pace that somebody else is moving at. See, David, it says in verse 9, David and the 600 men with him came to the Besor Valley, where some of them stayed behind. 200 men were too exhausted to cross the valley. But David and the other 400 continued in their pursuit. Again, this can be hard sometimes. We want people to be in the same place as we are, or people want us to be in the same places as they are when it comes to grief, when it comes to dealing with grief, when it comes to, to being burned out or being stressed out. But it's important to hear, uh, sorry, it's important to move at a pace where you can hear the Lord. And the only person, the only thing that can tell you that pace is, is you and your relationship with God. It's important to move at a pace where you can hear the Lord. When my friend uh, Tim was killed last year in a rock climbing accident, I had a friend who was killed in the rock climbing accident in Yosemite uh, almost a year ago. When he was killed in that accident, um, I I had to navigate this point with one of my former climbing buddies. You know, I processed and grieved the the loss of my friend. In fact, I I still am for sure. But my former climbing buddy, he was was all sorts of wrecked. and, And he got to a place where he was borderline obsessed about finding all the information that he could about the fall. For me, I didn't need to know all the details. That wasn't important for me. I just needed to know enough to make sense of the tragedy, which still, it's, it's, ah, it's hard to make sense of it, for sure. My climbing buddy, on the other hand, man, he would, he would find every article or every statement or every accident report that he possibly could, and he would send it my way, and he'd send it to my other friends, you know, who we climbed together back in the day. And, and for me, it became, it, it got overwhelming. It got overwhelming, It's like, dude, I can't do this. This is not allowing me to heal. This is not allowing me to process this pain. This is not allowing me to grieve and to be in a healthy space. So eventually I just had to tell my friend, I I had to disconnect with him a little bit, disconnect from that relationship and and just talk to him about like, hey, dude, like I get it. This is where you're at, but I am not in the same place. And if you need something, great, but please, like no more. I can't, I, I I don't need to read these details again and again and again and again. It's not helping me heal, and it was becoming unhealthy in my life. It's so important to make sure that we don't rush others before they're ready to move forward. Continuing our, our recovery after trauma also means that, that we need to remain alert for opportunities to recoup losses. See, a lot of times we're not thinking with a clear head, but David, he's taking time, right? He's taking time to weep. He's taking time to process the pain. And then he's gone to God and he's going, God, okay, what is it that I'm supposed to do next? And God gives him um, the mindset and and the alertness to look for opportunities to recoup losses. Read with me in verse 11. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake pressed of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins, very Mediterranean style. This would be very much the food they would have eaten. And he, he ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. Remember, they're in the desert, so this Egyptian is not in a good place, probably physically or health, you know, with his health. David asked him in verse 13, who do you belong to? Where do you, where do you come from? He said, I am an Egyptian. The slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Carathites, some of the territory belonging to Judah, and the Negev of Caleb. And check this out. We burned Ziklag. Can you imagine David and his this now 400 men that are with him hearing those words come out of this Egyptian's mouth? You had a part in burning our town. 
you had a part in taking our wives and our kids and our livestock and everything we had away from us? I don't know about you. I don't know how David controlled his rage and his anger. That'd have been it for me. Hearing those words, he'd have been done for. But yet David in his clear-headedness says this in verse 15. He asks, can you lead me down to the raiding party? Or lead us down to the raiding party. He answered, swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master and I will take you down to them. So he led David down, uh, and, they, and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except for 400, men who ro- or 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives, Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of, their, of, their life, of the livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. See, God promised that David would be successful in the rescue. So David didn't go off and do his own thing. No, he listened to God, and he, he did what, exactly what God told him to do. And then God showed him the way. Right? Rarely... Does God reveal his entire plan from the outset, right? But after David inquired of God and began taking action, that's when they found the Egyptian, which was the key piece, which was the key clue to finding where the Amalekites had taken all of the families and all of the livestock and and everything that they had owned. And they eventually were able to find all of their captured family members. David understood that he needed to strengthen up his team and shore up his remaining vulnerabilities. He understood that this was something that was so important. If they were going to be successful in, in accomplishing what God was asking them to do, this is what he needed to do. Strengthen his team and shore up any remaining vulnerabilities. See verses, read in verse 21 with me. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and were left behind at the Besor Valley. They came out to meet David and the men with him. As David and his men approached, he asked them how they were. Isn't that kind of cool? If you just pause and think about that. He just got done fighting this battle where maybe he could have used the extra 200 men. Instead of like making them feel guilty or feeling bad, he asks them how they are. How are you doing? So in the midst of all this craziness, he pauses and says, how are you doing? Um, Verse 22, but all the men and the troublemakers among David's followers said, because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. Well, thank you, I guess, you know, like, right? Uh, appreciate that. And David replied, no, no, my brothers, you must not do uh, that with the Lord, or must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered us into our hands, the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of, of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. David made this statute and ordinance for Israel from that day to this. See, David understood that he had some, some bad culture in his group. There was, this was kind of a group of ragamuffins, right? It wasn't all these God-fearing men. David had his mighty men. If you want to go look up some cool biblical stories, go look up David and his mighty men. But these were kind of just like these, kind of these outcasts that he had picked up. They were warriors, definitely. But he, and, and some of them, they, they, you know, they didn't have the same morals and the same values that David had. They didn't necessarily follow, follow God. So there's this bad culture that's a little bit within this army. And this could have been a very bad precedent set for David if, if he had listened to these grumbling men. Remember, those are the same men too 
22 that were just a few verses earlier were wanting to kill him. But I love what David says to them. Who will listen to what you say? No, David's listening to what God is saying. David is being directed by what God is telling him to do, not anybody else. See, difficulties can reveal dissension in the ranks for sure. And, and again, I'm sure some of those men were, were annoyed that, that the 200 were too exhausted to go forward and they wanted to punish him. But this is where David shows his true leadership skills. This is where David shows his true leadership skills and goes, no, that is not the precedent we're going to set here today. These men lost just as much as you did. And they're going to get just as much back. Another way that David shows his incredible leadership skills is by doing this. He gratefully acknowledges how God came through. See, David, in spite of all the affliction that he was facing, he still turned to the Lord and found wisdom and strength in him, his God, remember? And David gave gave credit where credit was due. Check this out at the end of this passage. He, the Lord, this is David talking to his men, has protected us and delivered us or delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. He gave credit where credit was due. Do you do that for the victories in your life? When God helps you overcome something, when, when your life group and, 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 you, and God work together and, and you overcome something in your life, do you, is the first thing you do give credit to God? Oh, God, thank you so much for helping me through that. Thank you so much for, for allowing me to experience that pain to experience that burnout, to experience those anxieties and that stress. But then now that I've gotten out of it, God, thank you for allowing me to experience that, but then now be a better person on the flip side of it. Do we take time to do that? I know um, a lot of times I don't. I forget. And then I'll remember a few days later, a few weeks later, a few months later, oh my gosh, that's right, God, you did this in my life. God, thank you. Where God should be the first person that we give props to when when he has a victory in our lives. So I want to leave you with a couple questions this morning. The first one is this. Where do you need to take some time to process a difficult circumstance? If you're not faced with a difficult circumstance now in your life, chances are you have been and chances are you will eventually. So it's a good time to set up a plan. But if you are facing uh, a difficult circumstance right now, where is that in your life and where do you need to take some time to process that? This is a gut question check question. This is a, uh, an introspective question. Maybe just take a moment and write that down in your notes. If there's a circumstance that you know you need to deal with, you know shouldn't be in your life, because that's going to help with the healing process. That's going to help, uh, you know, even just writing it down or speaking it to somebody else. You're, you're, you're putting it out there so that, that, that they can hear it, so that God can hear it. What is it? What is it, the difficult circumstance in your life? The second question I just want to leave you with this morning is this. Are you looking for God's hand continuing to direct things as you try to move forward? Ultimately, when we leave our stress, when we leave our grief, when we leave our anxieties and our burnouts and all of those things, um, our sorrows in God's hands, that's the best and the safest place for those things to be. But do we trust God enough? to take care of those areas in our life? Do we trust God enough and we believe that he will actually do something when we call out to him and and we offer those things to him and say, God, I don't want this in my life anymore? Do we believe that God will take care of those things and will help us work through those things in our lives?
Again, I told you at the beginning of this message, I only get to preach the messages that God is currently working on in my life. So when I propose these questions to you, believe me, this was a heaven-sent message for me this week. I needed to deal with some stuff in my life. I did a terrible, terrible job of, of processing some of these things in my life this week. I tried to flood our bathroom this week, and then that was awesome. It's a whole story in and of itself that I don't have time to do. But man, I, I, instead of dealing with it in a good way, I was just a raging terror and it was horrible, like a terrible example in front of my wife, in front of my kids. My son flooded our other bathroom, and it was one like, it was just this, it just seemed like it was like, okay, like God was just like, okay, well, until you come to me, when are you going to come to me? And then I'm thinking, I'm preaching this stinking message this whole, you know, this Sunday. God, what are you trying to do to me? And I'm like, oh, oh that's right. I've got things in my life that I need to process. I have things in my life. I have grief in my life. I have stress in my life. I'm on the verge of, of burnout in my life, and I need to process those things. I need to give those things to God because that, again, is the safest and best place for those things to be. Do you trust God enough with those things in your life? Do you trust him to take care of those things in your life? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you that you are a God who, who loves us and cares for us. Thank you that you, you put up with us. Um, God, I know... It can be so hard when dealing with grief, when dealing with loss, when dealing with suffering, when dealing with anxious thoughts, dealing with burnout. God, it can be so tough for whatever reason to turn to you. But I pray, Lord, that you would just, um, you would give us an overdose of your love, an overdose of your grace, an overdose of your mercy, Lord. Allow us to just sense that you are present in our lives. And God, even when, we, even when we, we seemingly run away from you, even when we turn our backs on you, God, God, give us reminders that you are right there with arms open wide, ready to take us back in. God, we cannot do this life without you. We cannot do this life without each other. So God, if we need, uh, you know, if you, if you need to bring relationships into our lives, if you need to bring people into our lives, God, help us to be open to do that. God, we're not meant to do this life alone. We're not meant to carry these burdens alone. God, your word says that, that you want us to cast all of our cares upon you, all of our burdens upon you. God, help us to trust in you enough to do just that. These things we ask and pray in your son's precious name. Amen.